This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. Happy Friday. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. We are chatting on Thursday afternoon. On this episode, a lot for us to discuss, especially in the AL East where the Yankees' annual injury woes are piling up yet again. We'll break down the situation in the Bronx. We'll talk about the Rays. Are they actually the fully functioning Death Star in this division at this point? The Alec Manoa debut, we've been talking about it for weeks. It's actually happening. It will happen by the time you hear this podcast. And Keith has an updated mock draft up on the site. A lot of angst in the comment section there. Always. That's the case for all your pieces, isn't it? Plenty of whining that I hate certain teams. I didn't say anything bad about anybody's pick anywhere in the mock draft. Nowhere. There's no analysis at all, and people are still salty. No shade given to the teams for players that you assign to their teams. That should be my podcast. No shade given, which would be a dirty lie. (laughs) But there is no shade in the mock draft. There's actually no shade. Hopefully, everyone will go check the mock draft and notice that there is no shade. Um, I save the shade for after the draft. And then I'll say that all your teams made terrible picks. <laughs> that's, that's an easy column to write, I imagine. Probably one of your yeah. easiest ones of the year. That's oh, fast. Yeah. Why your team's first round draft pick sucked by Keith Law. <laughs> it's kind of a template. You just got to change the names out every single year. It's easy, right? Yeah, exactly. All these players are terrible. Hey, you know what? If you say this is like an old scouting axiom, but if you predict none of these guys are going to be good, if you say they're this guy's never going to make the big leagues, the odds are pretty good you're going to be right. Yeah. It doesn't make you a good scout. No. <laughs> or scouting writer in my case. You know, you got the job is to find the ones who are good. Yeah, that's the game. That's the business. Yeah, otherwise you might as well just go do something else. If you don't like players, go do something else for a living. I'm going to be candid. I don't like beginning the talk on any show with the Yankees or the AL East because I feel like or the injured list. Or the injured list. That team, that topic, that tends to dominate the national baseball conversation more than it should, but sometimes it's appropriate. Yeah, I it's... never noticed. Do we talk about the it's the the Yan- Yankees? I'm not sure. Am I familiar with them? Yeah, sometimes we talk about them. But uh, a bad week for them on the health front. And yes. this is normal for them in recent years. Losing key members of the lineup, losing key pieces of the rotation, having to lean on their depth. And for the most part, they've weathered these storms pretty well. But I think every year it becomes more difficult because the core you're relying on gets a little older. It is more likely to underperform expectations and projections. But let's start with Corey Kluber. He's 35. So going into the season, if you replace James Paxton with Corey Kluber, you have a similar injury risk profile looking at recent years. So mm-hmm. going into the season, the Yankees knew, oh, there's a chance we're not getting 175-plus innings from Corey Kluber. We just hope the innings he gives us are high quality. That has happened for the most part after a slow start. Now they're going to have to turn to Davey Garcia. And I think Garcia is really interesting because I see a nice ceiling, but the control has been surprisingly bad in the upper levels of the minors, but now he's really in a key spot with Kluber going down and missing significant time. I mean, he's not going to throw for four weeks. 
So Kluber's probably back after the All-Star break once you factor in a rehab assignment. So we're looking at a pretty nice window here for Davey Garcia to establish himself as a member of the Yankees rotation. Do you think he can do it? Do you think he can put all these pieces together and start to deliver on that potential now? I do. I do very much. You know, it's interesting. This year, I just pulled up his stats this year in AAA. Four AAA starts, he has 12 walks. He walked six in the majors last year and six starts. Um, I think the truth of D.V. Garcia is somewhere in the middle of those two things. I do not think he's an elite strike thrower, but I think he can be pretty close, let's say close to average control. He's going to miss a lot of bats, though. He's he's extremely fun to watch. He's actually, in many ways, the type of pitching prospect. I often don't rate that highly. He's small. He doesn't make great use of his lower half. And he's not around the strike zone a ton. He's not in the strike zone a ton. He's around the strike zone a lot. But man, hitters do not see the ball out of his hand. It is really fun to watch. He'll work a lot of outings. I've seen him 90-94. He'll bump a 96 when you watch him throwing 90-94, and he's got an assortment of three, all like reasonably legit secondary pitches, but they hitters will cut right through that 90-94 like he's throwing 100. They just don't see the ball. It's not even a particularly high spin fastball. There's a ton of deception in his delivery, though, and he knows what he's doing. I think he has a very good feel for mixing his pitches. He is, to me, the classic, though. He, that's a five-and-dive starter. Do not put him in the rotation thinking you're getting seven innings out of him on the regular, because you're not. It's just never been who he... That It's never who he's been. That's never... I don't think he's ever going to be that type of guy. I think he will be five, five innings and 90-something pitches. He'll have outings where he strikes out 10 and walks three, but doesn't give up a lot of hard contact, if any at all. And... You know, before, you know, five innings like that, and he only gives up two runs and hands it over to a pretty good bullpen, and you're in good shape. I, I actually think he can fill Kluber's spot more than just credibly, where they don't really have much of a drop-off. But Kluber was showing some ability as he was going along, showing some ability maybe to work a little deeper into games. That's just not going to be DB. But DB might be more effective in the shorter stints than Kluber was. And and so I think, yeah, they've they've got some injury issues. I think they can weather this one. Now, if another pitcher goes down, then I think they're in a bit more trouble because behind there isn't a guy behind DV who's close to him who could step in and provide either quality or just some bulk innings. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with Clark Schmidt being hurt. You know, yes, I it think does. he was the other guy. Like when they built this roster in the offseason, they probably expected Garcia and or Schmidt to be yep. the first guys they could turn to. With one down in Schmidt, that does shorten things up quite a bit for them. And in the bullpen. It is still a strength for this team. I think you could see them adding another reliever or two at the deadline if they're afraid they're burning some of their guys out. I think they've mm-hmm. got the capital to do that. Of course, there's still some pretty interesting prospects in the system, even if they are relatively far away from contributing. So I don't think you have to worry if you're a Yankee fan. Oh, we don't have anything we can do to, to make this team better. Now, you, you got pieces. You can still continue to add to what you have, but it's mm-hmm. not just addressing the rotation potentially. Luke Voigt is down again. It's a grade two oblique strain for him. This is just a case where I think we're looking at a guy that has a legitimate injury prone label on him at this point. Luke Voigt just cannot stay healthy when he's out there. He's exceeded all of my expectations ever since the Yankees got him from the Cardinals. It seems like every hitter who leaves the Cardinals in the last five years turns into a much better hitter after getting out of St. Louis. Usually replacing a first baseman isn't that difficult. And I think with the Yankees, especially their track record of of taking guys like org guys 
and making them productive, that's the other way they've created some value. They did it on the other side of the infield with Gio Urshela a few years ago, too. Where do they turn in Voight's absence? Is it a guy like Mike Ford? Is it a guy like Miguel Andujar, who was good a few years ago and just didn't really have a place to play and had an injury in 2019? Like, How do you see them backfilling for Voight being down for at least a month, possibly again until the All-Star break? Yeah, I think, well, the easiest, you just said the easiest option, right? This is an opportunity to get Andujar some at-bats, and he's no longer playing a defensive position where he'd had some trouble uh, if he's playing first base. Now, maybe he doesn't move over to first base all that smoothly, but I would try it. I would absolutely try it. I think he's your best chance to get some offense out of that position. And they don't really have another guy somewhere in the system ready to step in at first base and provide a little thump. you, to me, then they would have to look externally. And you can, you're right that easy, filling that position can be relatively easy. They've done it, right? They found Voigt and they found Tauchman and they probably got other guys like that. They can pick up, they could probably find another guy in that category who's just out of favor, doesn't have a place to play somewhere else. Those guys pop up on waivers uh, quite a bit or get designated for assignment. I could see them doing something like that. But in the very short term, I think their best move would be to put in Duharo over there and let Voight give him six weeks, right? These oblique guys who rush back from oblique strains. I think the history is they're, they're not hundred percent. They come back and they're not fully healthy uh, or they re-injure it in this case. I don't know. Six weeks was just a a number I pulled out of the air, but give him the full time. This is not, Hey, you're out for 15 days and you come right back. He needs to get as much time until the injury is completely healed. And then he can come back and probably be productive again. I think the other player that might come up in some questions, this is probably going to go into the next Lindsay Adler column. They're going to say, <laughs> hey, what about Chris Gittens? Because they have a guy at AAA who plays first base. He's a right-handed hitting, power everything, and not a lot of anything else sort of bat. I mean, I think I saw a comp. I was digging around through old profiles of Chris Gittens, and it might have been over at Fangraphs. It was maybe he could be a Chris Carter type. Okay, well, that doesn't really solve the problem long term. That is temporary glue guy that if he's hot when you bring him up you end up being okay but more likely than not he just strikes out way too much i mean he is on a tear at triple a but he's 27 so expectations that he's going to come up and be the next void seem to be a bit far-fetched yeah i don't see it i don't think he's that guy um you know of all the guys in their system who could maybe come up and and i'm not even talking prospects at this point um yeah, God, Gittens is, I don't see this at all. He might be a poor man's Chris Carter, mm-hmm. if that. Um, I just don't see. He's always been old for where he's played. I've seen him a lot because he spent parts of two years at Trenton, and it is very all or nothing. Uh, they have a guy named Tom Malone, Thomas Malone, not the same as the <laughs> finesse pitcher, M-I-L-O, but it's spelled the same. Uh, in outfield, he was a high school outfielder out of Connecticut. The Rays took him. Uh, he was never a great prospect. But he can put the ball in play a bit. If he came up as the last man on that Yankees roster and could provide a little defense, a little offense, fill in in the outfield, yeah, I could see that. I could see him being more useful to a major league roster than just a straight-up slug guy like Gittens, who I don't think is going to hit for average. I know he's drawn some walks in AAA, but he's really old for AAA, and he was really old for AA before that. And he was really old for low A when he was there five years ago. He's just been old for everywhere he's played. And when a guy is just 
consistently that much older than his competition. I just want to sort of crumple. You know, it's not actually a stat sheet, but I just sort of want to crumple. I want to crumple up the electrons, right? <laughs> Which I don't know, probably causes some sort of singularity if I squeeze hard enough. But anyway, I, I would rather see them. If they're going to add one of these guys to the 40 man, Malone might have a little more all around value. There's nothing exciting about him. I'm not saying he's Malone is some kind of great prospect, but I think he can help in some little ways. And that's probably good enough for now. If Andrew Hart takes over the starting role and you just need another bench bat, who's maybe more than just a bat. Is Andujar more valuable to the Yankees as a trade piece, flipping him to a rebuilding team that can give him more opportunities and maybe play him at a position with more value? I mean, most of what we saw from Andujar earlier in his career is playing third base. Do you see him as a guy that can actually play that position well enough on a a non-contending team, at least, to justify giving him 500-plus plate appearances there? I might have given him that chance if we had that conversation in 2019 at some point, but he's he wasn't good at third base in 2018. I saw him in the minors. I said, that's a guy who might eventually work his way up to being a capable third baseman, but he really struggled at third base in 2018 and has barely played the two years since due to injury, pandemic, lost the job, et cetera. He's, it's just not there. Um, he has not had the reps and now he's 26 and expecting a player who was struggling at the position, has barely played for two years to go from a pretty below average defensive player to even being just maybe fringe average at third. It's not impossible, but I would say that is very optimistic. And there's nothing about about Andujar that makes me say he'll be able to do that quickly. I would rather say to Andujar, you're just going to go play first base or even maybe he's somebody's DH, just go hit. Because he actually hasn't hit. He's only played, you know, he's only got 47 plate appearances this year, but he's done nothing with that. I mean, really nothing. This is all my expectation that, hey, this guy three years ago could really hit. He was not a high on base guy, but he put the ball in play a ton, hard contact, ton of doubles, ton of home runs. Could he do that again? A low OBP slugger because he's got, who's got value because he puts the ball in play a lot. Yeah, I still think that guy's in there. He probably has to play regularly for us to see it. I don't think that's going to happen at third base. And so to answer your question, I actually think they're probably better off keeping him playing him. And then maybe if Voight comes back and they have a playing time squeeze, then explore whether there's a market for Andujar. Because I think after two years of barely playing and no production so far this year, his trade value is probably pretty close to nil. Yeah. And if he goes two months with regular playing time or near regular playing time, that would give him a path to recoup a lot of that value. The other player who, of course, has gone down recently for the Yankees is Aaron Hicks. He's got a wrist injury, had surgery, sidelined indefinitely, so we don't know when exactly he's coming back, but it was a torn wrist tendon sheath, and if I'm not mistaken, that is the injury that Ricky Weeks suffered twice years ago, if you remember him. Don't, don't, don't. Brutal. That's You're just taunting me now. I have not given up on the Ricky Weeks breakout season, by the way. It's still in play. Yeah, you and me both. Uh, as, a, as a Brewers fan, uh, I, I was always just bummed that Ricky Weeks was the guy that could not be healthy, and it's like, the reason that injury occurred, at least the reason it was explained to me, was that he had so much bat speed, basically his wrists weren't strong enough to keep up. Like That's more or less how this happened. I can vouch for half of that. That guy had electric bat speed. Like, exciting, oh my God, what did I just see kind of bat speed. Yeah, and I don't know if Aaron Hicks has quite that much bat speed, but it just it's another player, plays up the middle, has a ton of talent, and has had a lot of problems staying healthy. I think oh the problem God, for yeah. the Yankees here, Brett Gardner's not a center fielder anymore, and nope. they have to do something at least to find a credible defensive option to play center field 
while Hicks is down. That shouldn't be impossible to get, but what do you think their options actually are? Because that's a clear area of need for the next few months. Yeah, that's one where, okay, you could call up Malone for a short period of time, but they're, they're going to have to go externally, right? I don't, I, I, I don't see an internal solution. Am I forgetting somebody who's on the major league roster right now? I just, I don't know that they have anybody who can really, you, you need somebody who can not just play center field, but play center field well mm-hmm. um, and provide some offense. You know, Ryan Lamar could always run, but he's not going to hit. Uh, it's, he's very unlikely to. I should never say he's not going to hit about a player with the Yankees. They sprinkle some Yankee dust on them, and suddenly, <laughs> they, right? All of a sudden, they're like launch angled up the wazoo. I, I I don't see it. I don't think there's a guy here who's ready to help. You know, I'm sure there's probably somebody listening saying, "What about Estevan Florial? He can't hit. He's just never hit. He had a good first day or two, and then he's not hit since then in AAA. I, I just don't think that guy exists." Um, and so that would mean going outside the organization and trying to trying to make a trade. We saw the Brewers and Rays made a trade that involved some major league players. That sort of thing can happen at this point. I don't know who that would be right now. I would have to probably sit down, think about, look at some of the rosters of teams that are just out of it, would be willing to consider trading a current center fielder or somebody they have who's capable of playing center field. But I think that's the st- that of the three things we're talking about with the Yankees, because it's apparently a Yankees podcast. That is the one of the three where it would be they'd be um, most driven to look outside the organization. Yeah, Starling Marte kind of jumps out as the that's a good one. The name that yeah. fits the best. I mean, he's at the end of his contract. The Marlins have a lot of young outfielders. There's a motivation to move him, and we know the Marlins like to they they know those Yankees prospects. All those. I mean, that's basically their almost their whole front office came over from the Yankees. So I'm sure there's they could look at that Yankees farm system and say. We like that guy, and we like that guy, and that guy there who's actually still in the GCL or he's still in extended spring. Yeah, we'll, we'll take that guy too. Yeah, that one pretty much writes itself as a, a trade that could happen sooner rather than later too. I think it wouldn't surprise me at all. Marte is on a rehab assignment right now. If he comes through that healthy, it could be days rather than even weeks before a possible trade like that comes together. Uh, but Keith, let's talk about the Rays because we're not just a Yankees podcast and we're never going to be just a Yankees podcast. At least I hope not. Are the Rays actually the fully functioning Death Star in this division right now? Because they make the trade last week with the Brewers. They send out Willie Adames. Uh, they get back J.P. Fireisen, Andrew Rasmussen. Of course, Trevor Richards, part of that trade going to Milwaukee as well. And then they call up Taylor Walls. Not Vidal Brujan, not Wander Franco. Taylor Walls gets the first call, and it's just amazing to me that a team as successful as the Rays have been this season have two of the best position players that are major league ready, knocking on the door, ready to make this offense and make this team even better. I mean, it's just amazing to me. Yes, that system is loaded. I believe I had them as my number one system coming into the year, and this is this is why. It's not just that they have elite prospects, and Franco and Brujan are elite prospects. They have crazy depth, and that's a guy who... Uh, you know, in walls, he's probably in the top 10 in most farm systems. I had him 15th in the race system, which is not to say he's not good, but they have other guys with much higher ceilings. Walls can definitely play shortstop better than Franco can. And I thought there were two, I wrote about the trade for folks who subscribe to the athletic. I had two arguments why bringing walls up over Franco was the right move right now. One walls is a better defender at shortstop now and probably forever. And two, Walls being a bit older and a bit more experienced, maybe a little more likely to do something at the plate right out of the chute. I love Wander Franco. He's still the best prospect in baseball. 
He has only played, what, two or three weeks above a ball. He's still extremely young. Maybe he could come to the majors and rake right right away because he's just that talented. But I think there's more potential variance in his outcomes at the plate than there would be with Walls, where there's probably, there's certainly less ceiling. Walls is never going to have much power. But I like Walls' chance to do a little something at the plate now. Just produce a little bit, provide great defense. You're the race. You're trying to win. Lower variance is probably okay right now, given the position that they're in. And then later on in the year, if Franco rakes in AAA and we, there's another injury or you make a trade because you're the Rays and are always willing to move players, then you can bring Franco in once you have a little higher confidence that he's ready and the variance in his potential outcomes starts to shrink. Yeah, I think the fact that you have so much defensive versatility up and down this roster and both of those prospects who haven't been called up yet are playing multiple positions at AAA makes it easy to make the pieces fit when they're ready. The key of when they're ready appears to be Super 2 considerations. At least with Bruhan, he's three years older than Wander. He's putting up better numbers at AAA. He's played in the higher levels of the minors, played in the Fall League a couple years ago. I don't think he has quite as much to prove given his age and his progress. So is it really just about possibly saving some money in arbitration at this point? Because in the outfield especially, Kevin Kiermeyer has been brutal. And he's not the same defender that he was a few years ago. Bruhan's been playing some center field at Durham. Like that to me is an easy swap where you could make Kevin Kiermeyer your fourth outfielder. You're stuck with the contract for one more year, but it's not that bad of a contract in the grand scheme of things. Bruhan plays a lot. Kiermeyer plays less. And, you know, someone like Brett Phillips maybe gets DFA'd and possibly passes through waivers and stays in your organization anyway. I don't know how good Bruhan is right now in center. He could be very good there. He could fly. And he's really good at second base. I don't really think he's a shortstop. I think that's the one thing that's limiting him. Not that it's going to matter, right? I think if he hits like he's supposed to hit, if he's hit like he's hit so far in the minors, he runs like he's run so far in the minors, it's not going to matter. He's going to play somewhere up the middle and he's going to be a star. I, I If I'm sitting in the Rays front office, do I call up that guy now to play center field when he just doesn't have that many reps out there? I'll be honest, I probably wouldn't. And it wouldn't be a financial consideration. It would just be a baseball consideration. I think you could probably make a better argument of service time manipulation for Super 2 with Franco than you could with Bruhan in that they had the opening at shortstop. I think they made a good baseball move or in a completely uh, justifiable baseball move. With Bruhan, I don't think it's a service time thing at all just because, like I say, he just hasn't played that much in center. And I would be wary of asking a kid to, who's never played in the majors to come up after just a handful of games in AAA playing a new position and saying, okay, come up now, continue to learn the position. And also, by the way, now you have to hit major league pitch. Yeah. So maybe there's something they want to see defensively in the next few weeks. We get to do late June, July, maybe at that point, they're more comfortable with Bruhan defensively playing somewhere in the outfield, probably center field. We'll see. They got options. That's the best thing about it. Uh, the other thing that's pretty interesting about this team right now is Rich Hill's turnaround. I thought Rich Hill looked kind of done in the first few starts back in April, if we had an award for someone who looked done in April and turned it around and came back to previous levels, some kind of zombie award, you know, Rich Hill, an early candidate to pick that up for 2021, because he looks like the good version of Rich Hill that we've seen for the better part of about five years now, which is just remarkable. Like someday there, there could be a book about Rich Hill's career and I'd be pretty tempted to read it. Did you have me on that list? Did I look like I was done in April? <laughs> you can be honest with me. So there were points in April. I definitely I felt like I was done. Your April was all right. 
Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. Corey Kluber probably would have been on that list, except now he's hurt. So mm-hmm. I don't know what list he's on. He's on his own list, I guess. Yeah, he's. it's interesting. And you wonder if Rich Hill could. Is he in that Jamie Moyer? He can pitch forever. He, not quite, but he's a curveball guy, right? Where he's, he's so barely dependent on velocity. Obviously, at some point, the velocity just drops to a point where it is no longer viable, but he's less dependent on velocity. It's a guy who could probably be pitching at 86, 87, like Jamie Moyer was. Jamie Moyer actually was probably pitching more at like 82, 83. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing anymore, but especially for lefties. Lefties' um, threshold for velocity is just lower. We just know it is. And in his case, could he probably keep this formula going for a little while longer? I, I think so. Uh, you know, we're, we don't have a ton of comps. We don't have a lot of historical precedent, but we have some. And the fact that he's just, his approach is never dependent on the velocity of fast of his fastball gives me greater degree of confidence that he can keep this rolling at least for a few short period of time. And the Rays aren't, you know, they're, they're not looking at him long-term. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating that he's been able to make it work this long, but Velo actually up a little bit from where it was in the shortened season, still throwing that curveball about 40% of the time. And it, it seems like it changes the shape of that pitch a lot, too, when you watch him. Oh, I agree. I absolutely agree. I think that's a huge part of it. And the way he comes, they got him all the years ago uh, when the Red Sox first brought him back. Got him all the way on the first base side of the rubber so that there's more deception. He's tougher left on left. It's working for him. And it's it's not a one-size-fits-all. Some guys move to the extreme end of the rubber like that, and they're coming across their body. They can't go to their glove side. You have to check the pitcher and see what what's his athleticism and how much can he get around that when Hill's case, it made him far more effective between that and the fact that he's so heavy on the breaking ball is, I mean, that's, that is essentially his formula and you just don't tinker with it. Now, I know you wrote about the trade I referenced earlier, the Willie Adamas trade uh, for subscribers of the athletic. And I'm just curious to get your thoughts on Adames as a hitter, because coming up as a prospect when he broke into the league, I kind of thought he was one of those guys that could do everything well, in his offensive profile, but didn't have any sort of standout ability. I didn't think he was going to be the kind of guy that was going to hit 20 home runs in a season, but he did it. I didn't think he was going to be the guy that was going to walk 10% of the time, but he's kind of pushed his walk rate close to that level before. The most surprising thing for me is that, if anything, I would have said he's going to put a lot of balls in play, and that has not been been really a domination in the big (laughs) leagues at all. He's got a 29.5% career K rate, and he's been up over 30% by a pretty healthy margin going back to the shortened season. So yep. where do we go from here? Do you think the Brewers made a smart deal because at a minimum they upgraded defensively, but do you think they actually have a guy that could still get a little better as a hitter? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I always thought Adamus was a very good prospect and I hold to that. I don't think any of the skills tools really more than skills that made him a very good, not elite, but very good prospect. I think they're all still there. I don't think we've lost any of those. And look, made the, you know, the, the major league environment right now, I mean, this is, this has really altered the paths of a lot of guys who were supposed to be really good hitting prospects. You don't have to look any further than Keston Hura, who I was watching him last night. I don't know who did that to his swing, but they should be put in jail. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the Brewers think they can do something with his swing, and it's not going to have the same kind of results, but... In Adonis' case, I don't think it's the swing. I think it's a lot of approach. It's selection. It's making better swing decisions. And that is certainly something that can be taught, something that can be learned. And Adonis still isn't that old. So I I do hold out some hope. I would not bet on him becoming a star. I would bet on him being more productive than 
for the Brewers, you know, even if it's just a small amount, more productive for them than he was for the Rays. Cause really it was last year, maybe at the maybe September of the year before, which I tend to discount anyway. Um, we didn't really see a complete breakout from him. So there might still be another gear in there. Also, it gets Luis Urias off short, which one is good because he can't play it. Two, maybe he hits more, right? This is a guy who was, like you were saying about Adamas, just supposed to put the ball and play a lot. High contact, high average, some on-base percentage, not a lot of power, maybe very little power, and could play short in a pinch, but really he's a second baseman. Well, maybe if that's just what he's doing, um, or he's a platoon partner for Colton Wong, I think that's what I suggested in my column. Yeah, he could be, that could be pretty good. That could be, he could be a lot more productive that way. So they kind of upgraded themselves in a, in a few different ways. And for the Rays, it was just a chance to boost the bullpen. Um, I think in a, in a, you know, it's certainly the Rays have a good track record with bullpen, bullpen acquisitions, but to do so while also clearing room for walls and eventually clearing room for one of the other two middle infielders. Yeah. They had to make that Adamas trade to, kind of get things rolling and maybe ad- adapting to life without Adames, without putting that immediate pressure on one of the young players was also part of the plan too. It's like, well, we don't want to take a really popular guy in the clubhouse, get rid of him, and then not have a safety net at shortstop or make it seem as though we don't have a safety net at shortstop. But I think Taylor Walls is that player. I think that's sort of the, the whole point of him being up first, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. His glove is legitimately good. Yep, he fits there. Absolutely. Yep. Let's get to the Jays for a minute. Alec Manoa debuting Thursday. I think we've talked about him on like half of our Friday pods so far <laughs> this season because it's been so exciting to see the numbers he's putting up in the minors. And again, if we had a minor league season last year, he probably would have just cruised through high A and double A and yep. wowed everybody just kind of based on how good he was at triple A. We went through this with Logan Gilbert a few weeks ago when the Mariners promoted him. Where are your expectations at? I mean, I, I see just eye-popping numbers by comparison, even better K rates than what we saw from Gilbert, but we're still talking about 35 professional innings for Manoa, so it seems a little more risky to just project that onto him right away as a big league starter. Yeah, I think you can never really predict what any player is going to do, and especially a rookie coming up in a short period of time. I've said this in a few venues recently where I feel like the gap between the minors and the majors is as big as it's ever been, certainly in my career. So look, Daniel Lynch, one of the best prospects in baseball, came up and he, for one outing, he couldn't really find the plate. Another outing, he seemed to miss some bats, but when he didn't miss a bat, they hit it really hard. Baseball's hard. These guys are really good. So in Manoa's case, you know, I I don't read too much into what Manoa was doing in AAA, just more into what I've seen and heard uh, seen from him, heard about him, that it's four pitches. It's always been a lot of strikes. He pitches really aggressively. He will attack major league hitters. He will not be shy of the strikes. He will not be shy of contact. He won't be working away from that. I think he will go right after guys. And you know that could go well more than two ways, but two general ways. One is that he could miss a lot of bats pretty quickly and be really effective. And they don't need a ton from him. They just need him. If he's league average, that's great for them. You know, he could give up some surprising contact like Lynch did. Um, if he misses a little bit of his location in the strike zone, yeah, that could certainly happen. So I, I'm I'm an optimist though. I like Manoa a ton. I love how he pitches. And I think that he will at least give them some league average work, maybe pitch a little deeper into games because I think he's gonna throw a ton of strikes. It would be the thing that would surprise me most of all would be if Manoa came up and started walking a bunch of guys. I think if nothing else, it'll be strikes. He'll miss some bats. 
probably not huge strikeout totals, but he'll be able to work deeper into games and keep some runs off the board to give them some kind of league average work. I think the other question that people have when they look at someone like Manoa, who had the layoff in 2020, as so many pitchers did, what kind of workload do you think the Jays can comfortably put on him this season? Of course, with no minor league games in April, the slow start helps a little bit. It helps sort of preserve innings. Those guys were throwing, though. It's not like they were just sitting around snacking for a month. They were actually doing work. So do you think we get to the point if the Jays are still hanging around in the wild card race or possibly hanging around in the AL East, which is a scenario where a lot of things went right, given how good the division is, do you think Alec Manoa is still pitching on a regular schedule every fifth day and and able to hold up into September and possibly October? My guess, and I really don't know on this one, like this is a this is a difficult question that if teams think they have something figured out there, I've really heard anything from clubs. What I hear from clubs is we're, we're not sure we're kind of going seeing as we go because it's unprecedented where basically nobody in your system threw any real innings last year. And some guys threw at the alternate site, but does that count the same where they work on the same kind of schedule? And even if they did that, it was only about what 80 or 90 days. So it still wasn't a full season. So my guess just a guess, have not specifically spoken to the Blue Jays or any other team about their plans, would be that they're going to treat this almost as if a player was coming off of a non-serious injury last year, but just didn't throw that many innings. So you don't want to bump him up. You don't want to triple a guy's innings or workload from one year to the next. And that they will probably be monitoring him more carefully for any signs of fatigue, loss of command, loss of velocity, loss of spin, and will... Assuming he comes up, stays in the rotation, pitches effectively, they'll look for opportunities to rest him rather than just taking him out of the rotation or shutting him down Strasburg style, just saying, hey, we'll, we're going to skip Manoa's next start. or We're going to give him an extra day of rest before his next start. Maybe we'll move him to the bullpen for a couple of weeks just to try to take care of him rather than potentially overtax him. You know, the sort of worst, best case scenario is he comes up and he's so good, you just want to pitch him every fifth day. That's not out of the question either. But then at some point you have to say, how much can he do without, it's not even just about getting him hurt. In this case, you don't want him to pitch worse because he's fatigued. The moment that that sits in, you want to sort of, all right, but let's ease up on the gas here a little bit because we don't just want him to be healthy into October and into the rest of, you know, for the next several years, but also he's not doing us any good if he's not effective because his arm is tired. It just seems to me like the cumulative effect of pitcher workloads over time are not as scientifically determined as they could or should be, which is not me saying that teams are, are negligent or anything like that. But I, I find that a lot of what I, I read or what I hear kind of points to this, well, that's what we've always done, or that's what mm-hmm. we think we should do. But there's not a lot of confidence in it just yet. Because I look back at the workload, his last season at West Virginia, Alec Manoa threw 108 and a third innings in college that year, threw 17 more after he was drafted in Vancouver. Okay, it's 125 innings. I know the Verducci effect has been debunked, yet teams still sort of adhere to that concept in a lot of ways where that's 25 more than last year, that's 30 more than last year. It still comes out to be kind of a similar progression, regardless of whether there's any science behind it. So I just wonder if they look back at two years ago in 2019 and say, you get to 125 that year. We can push him to 150 or 160 because we can just add 30. I mean, there's a lot of other factors that teams are probably accounting for in workloads, instructs, different things that don't appear on yeah. baseball reference and fan graphs. That is work that teams can account for that we on the other side don't get to see. So 
2020 is a total mystery box, but even a normal year features more work for pitchers than we will find on the back of a baseball card. Yes. I don't even know that I have a whole lot to add to that because I, 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 though I guess the one thing I'll say is everyone's trying to figure out a better way to do this. Definitely no one's hit on the perfect formula. And I think what ends up happening is a lot of teams just err on the side of excessive caution, right? Well, it's probably better to pitch them less than more. And okay, I understand that. I can't entirely argue with that. I don't want to push all these kids just to see who breaks. And the ones who don't break, well, they were tougher and they were, you know, made of spit and gunpowder and all that stuff. <laughs> but at the same time, like we got to push them a little bit, right? Just to figure out who can handle a larger workload. And you know, just don't push them till they break, push them till they maybe bend just a little bit. Or to see who's, hey, we push this guy to 95 pitches in double A and his stuff started to dip a little bit. So okay, maybe we got to ease up there bring him along more slowly or consider a different role. Well, this guy we pushed to 95 pitches and his stuff was as good as ever. And the next day he was reporting less soreness than other guys were. There are ways to do this, but it's much more idiosyncratic. It's very individualized as opposed to, no, this is our one size fits all plan for everybody. I mean, to me, that's the, that is a problem. If teams are just saying, nope, we keep all our pitchers on these limits and this routine, they're not all the same. They're still humans and they're all built differently. Um, and so the idea that we're just going to handle them all the same way, uh, to me is, is actually not really evidence-based and I won't name specific teams, but I do have a couple in mind. Hey, if you're never letting your minor league starters go more than 70, 75, 80 pitches, you're not really going to develop major league starters either. Yeah. You're going to have a problem later when you're asking guys to add that workload at the highest possible level to mm -hmm. you know, turn the lineup over that third time. Like that's. That's a really big ask, and I think you're you're not training properly in the long run if that's your general philosophy. I think taking those more individual approaches is going to be critically important with the young players coming into the league. I mentioned up top, you have a mock draft, actually the 1.0 version. You previously had rankings for the mm -hmm. prospects Correct. in this draft class. This is the first mock that you've done for the upcoming draft. Thinking about high school pitchers and the totally random seasons they had or didn't have in the last two seasons now because of the pandemic, you know, really wiping out a lot of seasons in 2020 and even 2021, there were some places that didn't have normal training, normal seasons, normal schedules. Being very careful with these players seems like it's going to be kind of part of what we talk about for them for the next several years as they progress through the systems. Uh, up top, you got Henry Davis, the catcher out of Louisville. You talked to him on the Keith Law Show a few weeks ago. But as you wrote, it's still absolutely wide open as far as what the Pirates will do with that pick. I think so. Now, at this point, if you were, if we're just talking buckets, I've got them much more on the position players than the pitchers, which kind of makes sense. The Pirates aren't really just one pitcher away, and it's not like none of these guys is Steven Strasburg, you know, or Garrett Cole even. Uh, which is the last time the Pirates picked first overall. So if you're the Pirates and your system is fine, but definitely still building, and the Major League team is not fine, what do you what, what are you going to value more? We're, and also think about your probability, right? When all things are equal, you take the position player over the pitcher because pitchers just get hurt more. So I've got them on three position players, the two high school shortstops, Marcelo Mayer, who seems to have passed Jordan Lawler in a lot of teams' eyes, particularly teams up top. That may be because Jordan Lawler is going to be 19 at the draft and teams especially that use analytical models. That's a pretty big hit to your grade if you're older. Uh, and Henry Davis, who you mentioned. I have them taking Davis. 
I also played with scenarios where I had them taking mayor. The one guy I had them not didn't really play around with as much was having them take Lawler. All of this is based as much as possible on what I'm actually hearing from teams, executives, scouts, uh, other people who are other real sources who might actually know something. And it does seem like that's where the pirates have shifted where a month ago I heard that they were pretty heavy on lighter. Then lighter had two awful outings and missed a start without a whole lot of explanation from Vanderbilt. And nobody was really happy about that. That's going to push lighter down just a couple of slots, not a ton, but just a little bit. That said, maybe lighter pitches. Well, you know, it's Vanderbilt. They're going to pitch. They're going to play for a while. Maybe he goes really well the rest of the way and they change their mind. Maybe he doesn't go one, but instead he goes two or four instead uh, where I have him going, I think six in this mock. So there's still a lot of time left. And as I said, this is all based on the best information I have, but also a lot of this is really subject to change given how far we still are from draft day. So I think for me, one thing I like to try and do is figure out how the current crop of prospects compared to past similar draft prospects. And for Henry Davis, you have a collegiate catcher. I think, okay, how does Henry Davis stack up to Adley Rutschman? Because every year, the quality of the class varies quite a bit. So just because you're a possible 1-1 and you're the first catcher off the board doesn't mean you're as good or skilled the exact same way as the last catcher who was up in that range. Uh, How does Davis stack up as a prospect at this point to Rutschman coming out of Oregon State a few years ago. Rutschman was, I think Rutschman was just the better prospect, uh, which is no knock on Davis because I think Davis is a great prospect. In Rutschman's case, he was at the time a plus defensive catcher, period. That kid was, he'd been a catcher since he was something like 10 or 11. His grandfather was a catcher and a longtime coach. And so the, he, he had catching instruction from a very early age, whereas Davis, is I think capable of becoming, I think, an above average defensive catcher. I'm in the minority on that. Most people think he can get to be an average defensive catcher. He's pretty passable right now, but he's going to need some work. And I know guys who think he, I know a couple of scouts who are in the minority who think he's going to end up moving to another position. You never heard that on Rushman. I think Davis is the better pure bat right now, better hit tool today. Rushman had more power. And knew how to hit, certainly. Whereas Davis, I think it's it's a better pure bat-to-ball hit tool. Um, and I actually might favor that a little bit more than Rutschman's sort of walks and home runs approach. But that is a personal matter of personal preference. The two, their offensive packages are probably similar enough, but Rutschman was so far ahead on defense that I would give him the edge pretty comfortably over Davis when just talking about them in their draft years. The next question I've got for you, looking at the guys at two and three, you get the Rangers with Jordan Lawler, uh, the high school shortstop out of Texas, and then the Tigers with Marcelo Mayer, high school shortstop out of California. If you were choosing as the Rangers at two, would you choose Lawler there? Or is that just the more likely scenario based on what you're hearing? The more the, the more likely scenario. And I think I said in the comment too, that it's it's very mixed that there's there is a sentiment in Texas, like, hey, we need pitching in the worst possible way. Go take one of those two Vandy guys is there, just take them. But also Lawler is the local kid. He's really tooled up. He's, I know guys who've put crazy grades on him overall, even with him being 19. And they have seen him a lot this spring. My understanding is also the Rangers didn't see him a lot last summer. They didn't send scouts out to amateur events last summer. And that's where Lawler really was the best. If you only saw, if you saw Lawler all last summer, and then just you were on Mars and didn't see anybody this spring, 
you'd be more inclined to have Lawler as the best prospect in the class than if you include their scouting looks and performances this spring. And so that doesn't seem to necessarily jive with the Rangers popping him at two when their looks have been more influenced by the spring than they were by last summer. But that said, that's I've heard enough of that from folks and, and a lot of, oh my God, if you don't take the local guy and he turns out to be a superstar, how does that look for you? You know, to which I would counter and say, well, the Royals took Bubba Starling. It wasn't a bad pick at the time, but that has not worked out. And he was the local kid. And I know that crossed their minds a little bit. It's like, this guy's right in our backyard. If he turns out to be a superstar and we didn't take him, that sucks. So I can understand the Rangers. It, it doesn't have to be rational for me to say I understand it. Wasn't there a world when Bubba Starling was drafted, if he fell enough, he could have just went and played football instead? He, he was an elite football prospect. He was committed in Nebraska. He was supposed to be good. You know, I don't know from this, right? They tell me, oh, this guy's committed. This guy, there's a guy in this year's draft. I have the Cubs taking him, Will Taylor. He's committed to Clemson. He's a high school quarterback. He's probably going to move to some kind of receiver role. You know, I just look at that kid and think, man, you go play in the, you go play for Clemson. You would play in the ACC, playing a bowl game with that build. They might take you off the field with a spatula. The heck do I know? Right? <laughs> Apparently, he's good at the football. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Marcelo Mayer, though, the other prep shortstop projected to go early to the Tigers. Mayer versus Lawler. I mean, what's the difference for you? Lawler's more tooled up. I like Mayer's swing better. I think he's going to hit more. Most people I talk to would say Lawler is the guy you go, f- go with if you want the upside. Whereas Mayer is, uh, there's a little more probability, but you're getting less possible ceiling. I wonder how much of that is mitigated by the fact that Mayer's a couple months younger. And at that age, that matters. I think that matters quite a bit. It would not be the end of it for me. Like I had Byron Buxton over Carlos Correa in their draft class because even though Buxton was older, because Buxton, I thought, had the higher ceiling. I think that's still true, actually. Correa's had the better career, though. And a lot of that is due to health. And Buxton just took longer to develop at the plate than Correa did. Maybe that is somehow related to their ages. Correa, I think, was a young, he was 17 and Buxton was 18 and a half. So there's a pretty big gap between their ages. Um, in this case, I would be a little bit more inclined to take Mayer because there seems to be a broader belief in his hit tool. Uh, and bear in mind, unlike most years, I haven't seen either of these guys because I haven't flown. So I flew one time to Vanderbilt. We've talked about that. That was <laughs> not great. Yeah, I'm never leaving the house again, apparently. But in this case, based on people I really trust, and Mayer has played really well lately too and playing well down the stretch, whether it should or it shouldn't, whether it's just recency bias, it does matter in the minds of a lot of scouts and a lot of decision makers. Now, since I know we're, we're still dealing in a group of prospects that a lot of people listening aren't necessarily familiar with yet, we should talk about Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter. You have Rocker going to the Red Sox at four. You're really going to put that on us? Ah, Kumar. Kumar Rocker. It fits. It really does fit just from, from that standpoint even if, if it doesn't make sense for any other reason, but it does actually make sense for other reasons. Yeah. And I know they would love if one of those Vandy boys got to them. And the Red Sox are in a, it, they're, they're in the catbird seat right now. Cause it's coming in. They were hoping my understanding is they were hoping they'd get one of the two Vandy pitchers or Henry Davis. And there's pretty good chance that at least two of those guys will be available to them because I think there's a very good chance. Both of the high school shortstops go ahead of them. And at worst mayor goes ahead of them. It's, I know this may sound a little weird with all the moving parts. Is Mayer actually the best? Mayer may not be the best prospect in this draft class, but I think he's the least likely to get out of the top three of everybody. So the Red Sox are guaranteed to get one of those three guys, and they may have their choice of two. I think they lean towards Raka. It could be Lida. I don't know. Ask me another time. It's, it's still a wicked far away from the draft. 
both of the Vandy aces in Boston just fit so well with the accent. That's true. You got Leiter falling to six, which kind of seems like a great spot for the Diamondbacks in part because it looks like the Orioles might do the same thing they did with Heston Kerstad and kind of go and try and save a little money with that first pick to get a little more talent later on. So that just creates one more opportunity for the D-backs to end up with a great player in their spot. Yes, absolutely. That is a little bit of a lighter slipping. Everyone's a little concerned. How much so? At some point, you know, it was like Austin Martin last year. I thought Austin Martin was the best prospect in the class. He didn't go one. Well, the Orioles passed him over to cut a deal, which is part of why I think the Orioles would pass lighter. Also, I think they'd rather not. I think they'd, I feel pretty confident the Orioles want to take a position player anyway. They would pass, let Lighter go by them and cut a deal with somebody so that they can spend more money at subsequent picks. That's the strategy. I don't think there's any reason to believe they're not going to execute the same strategy this year. Then sort of Lighter slip, slip, slip. Okay, wait a minute. At some point, this has to stop, right? He's not slipping forever. And I think the Diamondbacks are kind of in that right spot. I think they would be opportunistic. Uh, I think some of this other scenarios, like if Jordan Lawler got to them, they would be ecstatic. But I don't think, I think it's more likely Lighter gets there than Lawler. I mean, this is essentially how the mock works, right? This team likes these few players. This team would love to get this guy, but he's not likely. So who's plan B? And then you start you moving the pieces. I have actually thought about trying to do this, like cutting out pieces of paper or whatever. God, I have so many board game pieces in the house. I could probably have a meeple for every guy, right? Just paint his name. It's a little much, but you literally move. Okay. Well, this guy goes here. Well, that forces this guy down here. And eventually then suddenly you look and say, like, Oh my God, I didn't put Jack Leiter anywhere. That actually didn't happen, but right. He has to stop somewhere. And Mark Appel's year, I don't think it's the same situation, but the first time Mark Appel was drafted out of Stanford, he slipped to, I think it was eight to the pirates who hadn't done the work on him. And that was how that thing sort of all went sideways. And he ended up not signing, going first overall to the Astros the following year. This is a little bit of a similar situation that if teams are walking away a little bit from lighter, but it's not that anybody doesn't like him. It's that they have just minor enough concerns to say, we'd rather take the other guy. I think the Diamondbacks are the first real stopping point if lighter starts to slip like that. It's a scenario that even a few weeks ago seemed a little bit far-fetched, but I actually could see it playing out that way. At least mm-hmm. your explanation makes a lot of sense. Uh, if you're going to go full cones of Dunshire with your draft board, please let's make that a YouTube thing because I think that would, <laughs> that would do really well if you're going to have your Ben Wyatt moment. Is that Charlie Day from the, uh, the, the <laughs> It's Always Sunny, right? With the board behind him with and the Pepe crazy Silva. eyes. Yeah, it'd look a lot like that. Yes, like that guy. I don't watch the show, but it would look a lot like that meme. Pepe Silva is my favorite moment from that show. I have not watched the entire series. I, it's it's a good dark comedy. Sometimes it's just a little too dark for me, but mm. uh, Pepe Silva is a go-to clip, so I think that's a <laughs> fantastic pull. Uh, if you're interested in checking out the full version of the Mock Draft 1.0 that Keith put up, you got to be a subscriber to The Athletic and get a deal $3.99 a month. Gets you in the door at theathletic.com slash baseball show. If you're enjoying this pod, take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review and tell a friend if you got a friend who you think would enjoy the show. You can also check out the latest episode of the Keith Law Show. Zach Buchanan was the guest this week. They talked about some changes in the Pioneer League, the Diamondbacks, the NL West as a whole. Some pretty fun stuff happening in the Pioneer League in the wake of some pretty awful business-related changes there. On Twitter, you can find Keith at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a safe and relaxing holiday weekend. 